Hello, everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of Gone But Never Forgotten. This week, we are doing what will be our first Gone Traveling episode of GBNF. What that means is that every once in a while, we will venture out from the boundaries of Canada and we will look at cases that are unsolved from other countries around the globe. This week, for our first trip, we have chosen a rather famous unsolved murder, the death of Elizabeth Short on January 15th, 1947 in Los Angeles. That sounds familiar. Why does that name sound so familiar? Well, that name is part of one of the most famous unsolved crimes in North American history. If the name Elizabeth Short doesn't ring a bell, I'm sure that the name The Black Dahlia Murder will ring a bell. And no, not the melodic death metal band. Ah, yes, The Black Dahlia. That explains it. Interesting that that stands out more than the name of the victim. Don't get me started on that one. I really believe that in general, victim names are what we should be remembering and spreading. But far too often, we remember the culprit. We remember what made the case extraordinary, or we remember certain elements. But sadly, the victim is what is forgotten more often than not. But I will stay off my pedestal for now. Just a reminder, GBNF deals with graphic themes and describes very gruesome topics. Listener discretion is always advised. For today's episode, there are very graphic descriptions of how the body was found and positioned. Listener discretion is strongly advised today. At around 10 a.m. on January 15, 1947, Betty Bursinger was pushing her young daughter through a park in Los Angeles and walking along some weedy and vacant lots when something caught her attention. Unfortunately, as Betty approached, she knew exactly what she was looking at. The body of a naked young woman who had been severed at the waist was lying just off the path. At first, Betty believed that she had found a discarded mannequin. What Betty was looking at, though, was the mutilated body of Elizabeth Short, her pale white skin standing out in stark contrast from her jet black hair. Elizabeth's body had been deformed in many ways. She was bisected at the waist, her blood had been completely drained from her body, her face was cut in a glass glow smile, which means it was cut from her cheeks to her ears, her thighs and breasts received a number of cuts, and some of her flesh was removed from her body. Her body was then posed at the scene of the crime. The lower half of her body was placed about one foot away from the upper half of her body. Her intestines had been removed from her body and placed underneath her buttocks. Her legs were spread open and her arms were pulled over her head, bent at the elbows. Her official cause of death would be listed as a combination of beatings to her head and hemorrhaging from the Glasgow smile. It was quickly determined, because there was no blood at the scene, nor in Elizabeth's body, that the murder had taken place somewhere else and the body was transported to the spot that it was discovered in post-mortem. The investigation was led by the LAPD and aided by the FBI. The FBI was able to identify the body quickly, within one hour, after they received blurry fingerprints via an early primitive fax machine. The woman would, of course, be identified as Elizabeth Short. She was a young, 22-year-old, hopeful, who had come to Hollywood. Short was originally from Medford, Massachusetts, and also lived in Florida before making the decision to move to L.A., where her father lived, to try and make it as an actress. 
Elizabeth would later be dubbed the Black Dahlia because there was word that she had a penchant for wearing black clothes all the time and also people had given her that nickname behind her back before she was found dead. The Blue Dahlia was also a renowned film at the time, hence the word Dahlia was ever present in people's minds. The special police bulletin that was put out in newspapers read, Description, Female, American, 22 years, 5 foot 6 inches, 118 pounds, black hair, green eyes, very attractive, bad lower teeth, fingernails chewed too quick. This subject found brutally murdered, body severed and mutilated, January 15, 1947, at 39th and Norton. Subject on whom information wanted, last seen on January 9, 1947, when she got out of a car at the Bitmore Hotel. At that time, she was wearing a black suit, no collar on coat, probably cardigan style, white fluffy blouse, black suede high heel shoes, nylon stockings, white gloves, full-length beige coat, carried black plastic handbag with two handles, 12 by 8, in which she had a black address book. Subject readily makes friends with both sexes and frequently cocta frequented cocktail bars and night spots. On leaving car, she went into lobby of the Bitmore and was last seen there. The FBI assisted the LAPD by conducting interviews across the country on potential suspects. Early beliefs were that the murder must have been conducted by someone who had skills in dissection because the body was so cleanly cut. There was also a potential break early on as a letter believed to be sent by the killer was sent to authorities and fingerprints were taken from the letter. However, unfortunately, the prints were not in the system. In late January, an envelope arrived at the office of the Examiner, one of the newspapers that was making this case more difficult because of media competition on the story. The envelope was labeled in cutout letters saying, Heaven is here. Inside of the envelope were belongings of Elizabeth Short, including her birth certificate, her social security card, and her address book, which had the name Mark Hansen on the cover of it. From her address book, police would interview approximately 75 men, most of whom had only briefly known Elizabeth. Mark Hansen was obviously also interviewed. He was the owner of the successful nightclub and admitted that he had known Elizabeth and even allowed her to crash on his couch a few times. Elizabeth would start to develop a profile with police as a bit of a drifter, drifting from place to place when people were willing to help her out. Authorities find themselves running ragged as they chase down leads in every direction. Letters, confessions, and people trying to point fingers at others. Hundreds of people were considered suspects in the case. Thousands of people were interviewed. Approximately 60 people confessed to the murder. Most were men, but a few were women also. We are going to quickly look at three of the people who have been fronted as prime suspects over the years. First, there was Robert Manley. Robert Manley was a married man who many stated was dating Elizabeth Short at the time of her murder. Elizabeth was last seen, as mentioned, at the Bitmore Hotel as she was getting out of Manley's car. According to most reports, Manley was the last man seen with Elizabeth while she was alive. Many people believe that Manley had something to do with Elizabeth's death and he was committed to an asylum in 1954 by his wife, after being diagnosed with hearing voices in his head. 
He would later die on January 16, 1986. The coroner would deem the cause of death to be an accidental fall. Police would ultimately dismiss him as a suspect because he had left town before the body was found. He had a sworn alibi and he passed two polygraph tests. Second, there was Mark Hansen. As mentioned, Hansen would allow Elizabeth to stay with him at times, sometimes as a boarder and sometimes as a guest. Hansen's name was also emblazoned on the address book that was mailed to the examiner, but that was deemed to only be because it was his address book, but Elizabeth had taken it and used it as her own. The files of the DA do show that Hansen had tried to seduce Elizabeth, but that his advances were stopped in their tracks by Elizabeth. It was the belief of the gangster squad, the group of officers who were working on the case, that Hansen was a prime suspect, and some of the members believed that he was guilty. Hansen had spent time at Sweden's Medical Surgical School, which would have tied into the surgical work. Hansen was also known to host lavish parties at his Hollywood home, and it was believed that certain members of the LAPD, amongst others, had helped Mark to cover up the murder. Hansen died of natural causes in 1964, and he had no prior run-ins with the police, nor was he known to be a violent man by those who knew him. Finally, there was George Hodel. George Hodel Jr. was a doctor who specialized in sexually transmitted diseases. He came under police scrutiny because of testimony that was given at a trial where he was charged with molesting his daughter, Tamar Hodel. Despite three witness testimonies stating that the act had occurred, Hodel would be acquitted of all charges regarding Tamar. Police, though, found many reasons to be interested in Hodel, including in regards to the Black Dahlia murder, and would put him under surveillance for over a month in 1950. One of the transcripts from that surveillance reads, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. That transcript was from February 18th, 1950. George's son, Steve, was tasked with going through his estranged father's things after he passed away. This was a weird situation for Steve as his father had been a grandiose man who had a penchant for being distant with most people in his life. His father had abandoned the family when Steve was just nine years old. George would eventually move as far away as the Philippines. While Steve was going through some of George's things, he came across photographs that bared a distinct resemblance, in his opinion, to the Black Dahlia. One of the other things that really stood out once Steve came to the conclusion that his father had a personal relationship with Elizabeth was that she was given a hemicorporectomy, a procedure that cuts just below the lumbar spine. This procedure had been taught in the 1930s which was when his father would have been in medical school. There are multiple books and a really good podcast called Root of Evil on the topic of George Hodel. These are just three of approximately 24 people who are not completely cleared of the murder of Elizabeth Short. Regardless of who did it and why, one thing remains. This murder was incredibly cold, incredibly callous, and will likely remain officially open for all of time, barring some kind of massive breakthrough. 
Odds are that whoever committed this murder in 1947 is no longer alive, having, take, having taken the gruesome truth to the grave with them. Those of us that are true crime lovers are left with numerous books, movies, podcasts, and so on and so forth that hypothesize to have the answers. But the reality is that we most likely will never know 100% what happened to this young, beautiful woman in January of 1947. This is a story that has taken on a life of its own now in the past 74 years. It is a cautious tale and a stark reminder that these kind of things happen, and it is extremely important for people to report anything and everything that they know regarding unsolved cases like this or regarding missing people cases. We talk all the time about the fact that secondary to losing a family member or a friend is the feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. That feeling that a perpetrator will never be punished is heartbreaking for a family, and this is why we harp so much on telling police or telling someone if you know someone or something that is involved in one of these cases. On the flip side, we also see that even when potential answers come up in cases like these, oftentimes the police, the media, and the public will shoot down the evidence provided and ridicule the people that have spent so much time and effort looking for answers. True crime is a double-edged sword. Oftentimes, people get involved in learning about the stories, but oftentimes, those same people can become obsessed by certain cases and start to be viewed as more crazy than vigilant in trying to solve things. Normally, we end our episodes by telling you to report anything that you know on the case, and we will here also, but we will make a more general plea. If someone you know has ever told you something or passed a story down from a previous generation in this or any other case, please tell someone. Police would rather investigate a lead that goes nowhere than risk never being told about something that, had it been said, done, or admitted to, one, or one more killer or abductor or untoward person off the streets could mean countless lives saved. So that's all we have for the case. Um, Julie, is there anything you want to add in here or say about the case? Uh, I think it's just very shocking sometimes when you hear um, like a story like this because you just can't imagine in your mind that A, that people kill people, but that do horrible things to them either before or after they kill them. It just It's kind of like an unreal thing to realize. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's funny because like, while I was researching this case and writing up the show notes, um, we were also watching stuff on The Son of Sam. We were watching mm, the documentary yeah. The Sons of Sam, which delves into the fact that there's more than one possibly person involved in that. And it's funny because, um, you know, like I've listened to the podcast about um, by the Hodel family about George Hodel. And, you know, his son, Steve, going through this stuff and he starts to go down the rabbit hole. He reminds me a lot of that case. You know, you have these people that get so, you hate to say obsessed, but they just get so consumed, I guess, with mm -hmm. the case. Yeah. And sure, they're finding things that seem to connect the dots for them. But then the more that goes on, people start to think that they're just crazy mm -hmm. and they start to lose um, credibility to a lot of people. Yeah. So it's. 
it's it's kind of nuts, you know. Like there's all of us true crime fans out here that want to, you know, in our case, maybe help solve some crimes or just learn about them and try to figure things out. Like for me, I'm always thrilled with the psychology um, that's involved in these things. But you get these people that are the same. They're possessed with just this need to solve a crime. Mm -hmm. And at first it's like, awesome, this person's going to find things. And then they start to find things and then it's like, well, maybe that's not correct or maybe that's not true. Maybe this person is just a little crazy. And it's almost sad because, you know, um, yes, it's crazy. I mean, the saddest thing that, again, we can't lose in this is, in this case, you know, 1947, Elizabeth lost her life. And we still don't know how, why, where, or who. Yeah. It's nuts. It's crazy. Know. You know, like someone took that, like I said earlier, most likely to the grave. And we may never get um, closure. Yeah. And that's crazy to me as someone who knows nobody. Imagine being a part of anyone's family, whether it's the victim um, or detectives, the Hodel family, anyone. Like, this is a lot to weigh down. And then you get the things that go on with, like, the police. And maybe they don't want to research it because to them the case is closed and they would rather move on to something else in the case of the Son of Sam or here in the Black Dahlia, knowing odds are pretty good they're not going to arrest the murderer at this point 70 some odd years later why is there any reason for them to start diving back into the case for them they've got a bazillion open cases to focus on so it's kind of crazy this is why i love true crime it's just you can just go in circles forever (laughs) yeah um i will say though that i do appreciate um you know anybody who does become obsessed or whatever the word we're going to say is i do appreciate anybody who puts the time and effort into um, getting names out there, getting possible theories out there. And I do appreciate all the listeners just listening to our podcast and helping us get those names out there as well. So uh, regardless, in the end, as long as we're getting the information out there, I think that is helpful in its own way. Awesome. Why don't you wrap up shop for us, Julie? (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you again for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Remember that you can reach out to us at gbnfpod at gmail.com facebook.com slash gbnf podcast on twitter at gbnf podcast or on instagram at gbnf pod thank you for listening and we'll see you again in two weeks